Would you open God's precious holy word to 1 Samuel 11? That's where we were when the when Rona came along put us at home and I substituted the revelation for what I was doing on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, but we're back where we were. It's been, uh, it's been a while, but remember Samuel was the last of the judges, also a prophet. And the people wanted a king like the other nations had. Sam, uh, Saul was head and shoulders above everybody, a very tall guy, handsome guy, talked about how handsome he was. And so that, <laughs> that qualified him to be the king, according to the people. So they had a big party and had a big time uh, back in chapter 10 and everybody was happy. Then Saul went back home and started farming again or resumed farming. There were no, there were no carefully laid boundaries for Israel. As a matter of fact, during the hundreds of years of the era of the judges, they were pathetic. They, they were very uh, easy to fall back into idolatry during that era. So there were seven, there were seven times they fell into sin, seven times God delivered them. And God provided judges along the way. They didn't have a leader, but they had a guy who finally could be appealed to as the final judge, the, the guy who would make the decisions. But more importantly, God would, uh, God would give him special strength to lead the people and guide them into war when they needed to go into battle. Now they were pretty pathetic they were still divided into their tribes. They, they, were not, they were not connected as a nation, but they were loosely connected as the people of Israel, albeit in the 12 tribes. So it was, it was difficult during that time to get them to come together. There were times during the era of the judges that they almost lived like cavemen. They lived in their land, of course, but they had two particularly strong enemies, the strongest by far, the Philistines. They had, they had weapons of iron. The brass weapons that other people had just broke. A brass sword would clash with an iron sword and the brass sword would break. An iron tipped spear or arrow could penetrate and go through a shield. So the, the outfittings of a chariot or the shield of a soldier, those things were fairly meaningless in battle. 
Another strong enemy they had were the Ammonites. The Ammonites and the Moabites descended from Lot via his incestuous encounter with his daughters, each of whom had a son by their father Lot. One was named Moab, the other one Ammon. Ammon. And the Moabites, the Ammonites were always an accursed people to the nation of Israel. They were always enemies to God's people as well. So in the time of the judges leading up to chapter 11 here, Israel was in an extraordinarily weak condition. They didn't have an army. They, they, didn't, they didn't go into field exercises to learn how to defend their land or anything else. So, for example, the Israelites in the time of the judges would spend a lot of time. They were very good at agriculture and they were a pastoral people. They raised, they raised uh, sheep and goats and so forth. They were very good at it. So when they raised their crops and they just had an, a beautiful, huge field of crops, grain, whatever, the Philistines would watch them from hills far away and the harvest time would come and they, let not, they not only let the Israelites prepare the land and then farm the land, plant the crop, grow the crop, then harvest the crop, they would gather the crop into the barns, the bins, the areas where they would keep their crops. And it was then that the Philistines would sweep down upon them and steal their crops. So there was hunger. There was fear. Uh, there was incohesiveness in that tribes didn't really come together with other tribes most likely because they were afraid that it would look like they were trying to bring themselves together to fight their enemy. So they were just a bunch of cowards. And I guess if you want to look at it this way, their record during the time of the judges was like five and 200. I mean, they just lost everything. They'd win one every once in a while. Gideon, for example. Samson by himself did his thing. But now the people have called for a king. Okay, so the guy has been elected the king, chosen the king by the people. He's been anointed by Samuel. He goes back home to his farm, his family farm. So there's no castle in which he lives. <clears throat> there's, no, there's certainly no city of Jerusalem at this point. You had a place where the people came to, to worship the Lord and there was a there was a place where they set up parts of the tabernacle where the people could come and do the things that they did in the tabernacle. But it was just an era of darkness and confusion. And so the Philistines and the Ammonites knew that the Israelites were easy pickings. They could pick on them. They could bully them. They could steal their stuff. They could kill them. They could demand tribute from the people. They could enslave them. But now Israel has a king, Saul. So let's look at it here. 
First of all, we'll look at the siege of Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead. Nahash the Ammonite went up and camped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the people of Jabesh Gilead said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us. We'll serve you. Don't hurt us. We'll do whatever you want. Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition, I will make a treaty with you by gouging out the right eye of every one of you. And I shall make it a reproach against all Israel. So this was the job of the Gentiles, formerly considered the Canaanites, I guess. The job of these people was to keep Israel subdued and humiliated and defeated. So they went out, you know, in, in the best faith that they could when they were when they saw this Ammonite army just on the other side. They go out. What do you want us to do? We'll do it. Just don't hurt us. Well, okay. Line everybody up, bring them out here, and we'll pluck out the right eye of all of them. So you see, this would be a thing of shame, humiliation. It was just awful. It's torture, it's brutality. Now, verse uh, 3. The elders of Jabash said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers throughout the entire border of Israel, and if there's no one to save us, we'll come out to you. Give us seven days. Just seven days. Saul becomes informed. Now Saul's over there plowing his land and taking care of his animals and all. And people come to him and tell him messengers came to Gibeah of Saul. Spoke the words in the ears of the people. And the people raised their voice and cried. Now this is why they wanted a king. This was his job. A national leader has as his number one priority to protect his people, the king to protect his kingdom and the boundaries, the area where they live. This was of utmost importance. Behold, Saul came after the cattle from the field and Saul said, what is troubling the people that they cry? They told him the words of the people of Jabesh. So Saul becomes angry and raises an army. And he, really, he really does good, but it's the Lord that does it, if you look here. And Ruach Elohim, that's the Spirit of God, rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his wrath was kindled greatly. Do you know... There are times when things get to be so wrong that the people of God just have to do something. It's a case, well, the Spirit of God came on him and this caused the Spirit of God more uh, approved the righteous indignation of Saul. He is extremely angry about this. You mean they went to this guy practically begging him to not do anything. They give him anything he wants and he requires that they all just pluck out their right eye. He took a yoke of oxen, cupped them in pieces and sent them throughout the entire border of Israel 
in the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not go forth after Saul and after Samuel. Stop there. It's not only, it's, it's not only a political exercise of the king, but it is a holy exercise for the people of God in the name of the prophet Samuel. Samuel is in on this. Whoever does not go forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall this be done to his oxen. They'll be cut up. If you don't go with us, we're just going to come in there and take all of your oxen. And that's like money in the bank for those people. And we're going to cut them up and offer them to the Lord and you won't have anything to farm with or to do your business with. This is what's going to happen to you. Now, they wanted a king. The Spirit of God comes on him and he's becoming a king. And a fear from Yahweh fell upon the people. And they went forth as one man. This was the Spirit of God working through the leader into the hearts, through his heart, into the hearts of the people with the approval of Samuel, the prophet. So what happens? These people become focused. They join in the wrath of Saul and they become committed to the purpose to which Saul is calling them. And it was by the reverential awe, the reverence, the fear for Yahweh that they come together. And he counted them in Betek. And the sons of Israel were 300,000. And the sons of Judah, 30,000. Now remember what these people had said. They said, give us, uh, give us, just these days, seven days, right? Um, they said, give us these days, these seven days, and let us just see what happens. So, all of this happens in a seven-day period. 330,000 men, Israelites. They're not trained in warfare themselves, this generation, they hadn't done anything like this before. They were just farmers. They, they, they kept animals and raised crops. They had families. They were more or less private. They lived out in the ultra rural areas and they tried to stay away from the armies of the enemies. But they've come together. I'm sure that there were craftsmen who made Weapons for them. 330,000 men. So Saul takes them against Nahash, the leader of the Ammonites. And they said to the messengers who had come, So shall you say to the people of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. And the messengers, so... Saul is telling the people there, we're going to come and by, by the hand of God working through us, we're going to save you. You're going to be saved. And the messengers came and told to the people of Jabesh and they rejoiced. And the people of Jabesh said, tomorrow we shall come out to you and you may do to us all that is good in your eyes. 
So I'm thinking, I'm thinking that the leader of the Ammonites is laughing, looking around. I, this is a gospel according to Charles. You can take it or leave it. Looking around at his next in command, his lieutenants and his generals. And they're all laughing at Israel because these people are going to come out in his mind. They're going to come out and they're going to line up. And one at a time, they're going to let you pluck out their right eye. So that must have been a big joke to them, surely. Tomorrow, we're going to let you do whatever you think is right. And it was on the morrow that Saul put the people into three contingents. Now, where did he get this idea? Saul wasn't a general. Saul didn't fight battles. It's the same thing that Gideon did when he fought the enemy. Now, he only had 300. He didn't have 330,000. He had 300. But he used, he used some, some mind tricks and some mind-leading techniques because they, you know, they lit lights and made noise and did all these things and made it look like a whole lot more soldiers than what they really were. But he divided them into three contingents of 100 each. Again, the gospel according to Charles, you can take it to leave. But I have a feeling that Samuel goes back and he looks at the way Yahweh had delivered his people in the past. There would have been, of course, the famous battle that Gideon had fought and won with his 300. There would have been, there would have been uh, the battle of the four kings of the plains, Keterleomer and his alliances, and when they had kidnapped Lot, then Abram, Abraham, Abram was stirred to make sure that didn't succeed, and he brought together 318 trained servants. And they did much the same. They made them, they tacked at night, and they made themselves look to be more than they were. But he doesn't have this problem here because there are 330,000 of them. Now, what do you think that looks like when they all come up marching and on their donkeys and on their camels and on their horses or whatever they may have had, and they pop their heads up on the rise, looking down on the place where the Ammonites were? He divides the people into three contingents. Not going to let anybody, not going to get outflanked, not going to let anybody escape. He means business. They came into the midst of the camp, went during the morning watch. This has been very early. So once again, coming forth and coming forward early, early when things are moving from, from darkness into light and you can't see as well during that time as you could at other times. And maybe he used some of the other tricks, no telling what kind of noise as they begin to come about. And they swelled upon the horizon and showed themselves to be a mighty army of 330,000 Israelites. They came into the midst of the camp during the morning watch and they smoked the Ammonites until the heat of the day. So this goes for six or eight hours, just killing Ammonites everywhere. And it was that those remaining scattered. 
the ones, the Ammonites who hadn't been killed yet by the heat of the day were running and no two of them remained together. They were so thoroughly defeated that what few were left didn't even have a buddy to run with. He ran by himself and they were off and running and Saul with his mighty army for the first time in a long time was used of the Lord to show the world that Israel can fight with the power of the Lord or the Spirit of God if Israel has to fight. And so they came together from all of the tribes just so they could save the people of Jabesh Gilead. Ammonites, utterly in a period of six to eight hours, the great army of the Ammonites was decimated. They were gone. So things begin to change in Israel. Now you have to keep this in mind. God is always up to something. So the purpose of God is moving through time. Israel now is going to be reforged into a nation. And in the due course of time, they will become a mighty nation in the time of David and especially they will become a glorious kingdom in the time of Solomon until, of course, sin begins to cause them to be diminished because the hand and power of God is not there as before when the people turn to sin. The whole matter, however, is that God has made a covenant to deliver into the world his Christ through this nation. So he's not going to let anything happen to this nation. He has promises that he has made, many of which will not even be fulfilled until the time of the millennial kingdom. Promises to Abraham, promises to Israel as a nation, promises to David. So now Saul is the first king and this was a glorious victory. There's something different now about Israel. And the people said to Samuel, whosoever says Saul will reign over us, and that's back in chapter 10, people questioned whether or not this was the guy to be their king. Give, give over these people and let us put them to death. Bring the naysayers to us, we'll just kill them. Saul said, no man shall be put to death on this day. For today, Yahweh has worked salvation in Israel. Saul is off to a good, a good start because he utterly depends at this point in time, he utterly depends on Yahweh, on the spirit of God. He doesn't depend upon his, his personal strength or or savvy, he, he, never, he hadn't ever led a, people in a, into a battle like this before. This was all of God, and he acknowledges it here. Yahweh has worked salvation in Israel. So Israel accepts Saul as king. Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal 
and renew there the kingdom. All the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before Yahweh in Gilgal. And there they slaughtered peace offerings. Now this was like a, thanks, a thank offering, a thanksgiving offering. Had slaughtered peace offerings before Yahweh. And Saul and all the people rejoiced greatly. They came together and had a great feast. Now a peace offering is a private matter. So this is the kind of thing where all the people were coming together, but most likely in family units, they offered their own peace offering. Now the peace offering was something that could be done anywhere. It wasn't in the law of Moses. It wasn't something that was designated just for the tabernacle or later on just for the temple. It was a kind of mobile thing that you could do anywhere. It also involved three parties. It involved the people, the king, and the Lord. And they all participated in this thing. And that's why, that's why the peace offering was offered in thanks as thanksgiving offering offered up. That was for Yahweh. Portions of the peace offering were preserved for the priesthood. So the priesthood could enjoy it. And then everybody comes together. Everybody comes together, including the king. And they have a happy time together because of the great victory and what God has done with his people Israel. Now he's preserving them. God will save his own. He will send the redeemer to redeem his people out from sin. That time is coming. And so God is bound by his word and covenant to protect these people. And God does what he has to do, when he has to do, where he has to do it in order to see to it that these people are preserved. And that at last the Savior comes and the redemption, the price of redemption is paid. And all of that with regard to the ministry of the Christ and the salvation of his people is just as active here in this chapter as it, as it would be in anything that we could read even in the New Testament. But we're going to pick up on that next time and we'll have our deacon prayer time right now.